When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture with me, Neil Denny. This week, a journey around the landmark buildings of contemporary Britain with John Grinrod and his new book, Iconicon. John Grimrod is the author of Concretopia, a journey around the rebuilding of post-war Britain and outskirts living life on the edge of the Greenbelt, which was shortlisted for the Wainwright Prize. And of course, both books we've talked about previously on Little Atoms. John's new book, Iconicon, a journey around the landmark buildings of contemporary Britain, we're going to be talking about today. John, welcome back to Little Atoms. Oh, thank you for having me. Very lovely to be here. Tell us then what the idea behind this one is. So this is a kind of exploration of the things that have been built during my lifetime, I guess, in Britain. So since 1980 to now. And part of it was that thing where when things happen during your lifetime, you kind of, you don't, in a way, you sort of almost don't notice them, even though they should be more noticeable because they're happening during your lifetime. But for some reason, you know, I'd been sort of focusing on sort of earlier periods and sort of other things that I'd written. And in some ways, it's sort of easier to kind of see those things more clearly because of distance. So this book is sort of a bit of a challenge, you know, (laughs) to try and see the modern world with a bit of distance. And obviously, we've been living through a kind of pandemic recently, which has given us all a bit of distance, really, to the world. So... So I think probably we're all feeling a bit like we're seeing the world a bit more clearly, maybe, than usual. So the book was split roughly into into three parts, which span the years from 1980 to the present day, um, indeed the future. And in the first part, which is, I guess we could loosely say the Thatcher years, it's threaded through with excerpts telling the story of the redevelopment of the London Docklands, Docklands, as that area is, is generally called, but that's, you know, the Isle of Dogs, Canary Wharf. So tell us about, let's talk first of all about that story, because that story is iconic of that entire era. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary. And also because it is one of those things that happened very early on in the sort of first Thatcher administration. And it's something that comes out of one of the people that I interviewed was Michael Heseltine. And he sort of talked about how basically this idea of regenerating the docks and sort of building like a whole sort of new town there had been a thing that that he'd been thinking about all the way through the 70s after he'd been sort of a junior minister in the early 70s. And he 
he sort of finally gets the job as environment secretary and he sets about setting up a development corporation, the London Docklands Development Corporation, to replan and rebuild the whole Docklands area, which is about seven or eight miles long. It's absolutely huge, all of these kind of closed down docks as containerization has meant that uh, the work has moved elsewhere. And it is this incredible story, really, because there's a huge, po- well, it's quite a sizable population of people still living in Docklands while all of this replanning and rebuilding is going on. And in a way, the stuff that gets built is sort of built around and sort of through all of these existing developments as if they're not there. And they all kind of turn their back on the kind of existing infrastructure and the existing kind of homes and existing blocks of flats and all that sort of stuff and instead they're looking out to the river uh, which was always you know people were sort of turning their back on because it was an industrial area and uh, yeah and so you just get these kind of waves of experimentation so in the 80s you get all the postmodern uh, architects all having a go at creating kind of landmark buildings like the Cascades, that amazing kind of triangular apartment block, uh, which is classic kind of mid-80s postmodern experiment. Um, and then you've got loads of high-tech architecture. Um, and in fact, the, the London Stockton's Development Corporation set up home in a very early Norman Foster building, uh, which had been um, built in the early 70s for the Fred Olsen shipping line and it becomes the London Docklands Development Corporation's offices and so they were in this really high-tech office right in the centre of it all and then there were these kind of successive waves of sort of crazy development that happened you know and there's things like you know Terry Farrell comes along and designs some a sort of redesigns a big warehouse uh, that becomes Limehouse Studios which is where all those early 1980s those very sort of proto- Channel 4 programmes were all made, you know, all those little companies, the independent companies that have made all those Channel 4 programmes when that kicks off in 1982, they're all based there. And so Docklands becomes a sort of hub of these kind of new industries and these, you know, new sort of creative things. But then after quite a short while, all that stuff is sort of swept away and a whole new wave of like mega development happens. So you get, you then get um, the planning and the, the building of Canary Wharf sort of on the same spot, you know, and it's sort of weird to think that, you know, in the, the same year that Nick Jagger and David Bowie were dancing in the street and doing that video in 1985 was the same year and on the same sites that Canary Wharf towers were first revealed and then uh, uh, and then they, they go up by the sort of early 90s. So yeah, so I sort of talked to, you know, residents, you know, sort of did a lot of research and spoke to a couple of the people that worked on Canary Wharf and that they, they were two of the project managers of, of the whole Canary Wharf scheme, which is just crazy to kind of, you know, have that sort of insight of, you know, people that were there at the time. One of them told me, you know, that she only got the job because the people that were doing that were doing that job before her got killed in the Lockerbie bombing. You know, the, the, it's sort of a reminder that there's all this sort of big history going on at that same time, and that you know these stories don't exist in a bubble. That they are all sort of weirdly interconnected, and there's a you know there's that really kind of there's that 80s sort of fractal sense connecting all these things up, which is fascinating. Um, and, so, yeah, and indeed, so I, throughout the period of time that you're talking about in these books, there are, there's going to be multiple financial crashes, which obviously uh, you know, <laughs> massively impact all of this, all of this huge development. 
You talk about the early Thatcher years and and the right to buy program, which you know sold off scandalously sold off most of the UK's social housing stock. But I mean, we've definitely talked about that on this on the show before, and I wanted to talk more about how you also sort of like parallel that with the sort of rise and rise and rise of the housing development companies or the you know, house builders, your Barretts and Wimpies and Persimmon Homes and, and and things like that. And but basically, the story of how Barrett in particular basically revolutionized revolutionized mass house building but obviously for owner occupiers yeah absolutely i mean that kind of all the stuff that barrett did in the 80s it did sort of affect all the other house builders because they all sort of saw how successful they were being and they were trying to work out how to do it and because barrett were very marketing led they were very market led and they you know their marketing department would kind of you know try and work out the best ways to kind of sell a home and then that would be reverse engineered onto how you would then design the home and how expensive it would be and therefore how expensive it would be would depend on how well built it was and what it was made from and how big it was and where it could be and all that stuff so it was sort of quite an interesting model for what happened to housing where it went from that kind of municipal housing thing where you had Parker Morris standards of sort of room sizes and and all that sort of thing to suddenly it just being about being a product like any other product and therefore it was all about what people could afford to buy and you know what was most fashionable and you know most eye-catching and what the things that would be that would catch somebody die most to make them buy it so Barrett used to do you used to be able to get a mortgage with Barrett that used to kind of bring in you know all the white goods that you might need in your kitchen and all that sort of stuff you know you could you could get all of this stuff as part of the house you know they they sort of worked out that there was a whole kind of package around that and then they also they targeted different bits of the market so they went after single people and they built um they created these blocks of flats called um, Studio Solos, which they sort of launched in the early 80s and were incredibly successful. You used to get queues of people down the street kind of waiting to sort of look around them and see if they could buy them, you know, and they're basically like little bedsits, but sold as if they're this kind of incredibly sexy, exciting new way of living. And so Barra, and also... One of the things that they've they become really, really well known for is introducing the starter home. So it's like your first house that you buy, because a lot of people are moving from renting into buying at this point, because that's the whole thrust of the government's kind of push, you know, and it becomes easier to get a mortgage. And also people are buying council houses very cheaply and then moving to selling them and, move, and moving into a new house so you get some of that going on as well so it's a sort of you know it's a fascinating story because these buildings I sort of feel like they've become a bit we don't notice them we don't see them you know every town has got these estates whether they're built by you know any of the really big names or whether they're built by actually sort of some really small local companies which you don't get so much now but at that point you did we're really really like emblematic of the 80s particularly you know before you get that crash happens at the end of the 80s that kind of you know loads of houses get repossessed and all that sort of stuff but until that happens there is this great big window of like 10 years where they're just making more and more money every year and they're just building more and more ambitious houses so they get you know you get these kind of great big sort of Dallas ranch style big hair houses happening in the late 80s you know the premier collection uh, which is what Barrett have which is one of the houses that ironically the Thatchers buy you know how premier can you get than the premier buying one of your houses and Barrett is a big 
donor of the Tory party, you know, she buys one of his houses. They actually only live in that house. I think they, they only sleep in that house like six nights out of six years and then they sell it, you know, so it's not really very successful as a purchase for them. But yeah, it's really kind of, I sort of, one of the things I found really fascinating about it was that, that sort of idea of them being, a, these houses being a status symbol, but also a symbol of that era, um, because they, they really encapsulate so many of the things that we were told were good at the time, including conspicuous consumption. You've already mentioned the 80s was a, a period of time of postmodernism in architecture. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely amazing because it sort of comes slightly from nowhere, because even though postmodernism has happened in quite a big way in the US in the 70s, it doesn't really get going in this country until the kind of early 80s. And it's really, it really is a bit like the bar at home. It's a bit like a boom bust thing where it's sort of all over really by the early 90s. And um, so it is again like a little capsule moment and just it's so playful and kind of fun and exciting you know and people were sort of trying to make buildings that were incredibly enjoyable that becomes like a really really significant reason for a lot of the design you know is to make it a pleasurable experience and that is, you know, for a lot of the architectural profession who aren't postmodernists, kind of looking at this stuff going, oh, my God, stuff is so eager to please. I mean, how awful. <laughs> people, they want people to like them, you know, and it's got that kind of slight kind of, you know, Sally Field Oscar speech thing about it, where it's a bit desperate for you to like it, you know, sometimes. But just that kind of that excess and that, you know, that kind of slightly um, outrageousness is really encapsulated in a lot of these buildings. And I, I did go and interview Terry Farrell. And he was so great to talk to. I mean, he was really, like a lovely, you know, a really lovely man, really, really interesting, a very kind of quite sort of openly emotional about stuff, you know, very kind of, you know, and talked a lot about being, you know, working class in a profession where, you know, working class architects weren't really a, much of a thing. And his big thing was he, was he really was all about the sort of taste of everyday life you know so he thought that art deco was amazing because so many people sort of aspired to that kind of glamour in their everyday lives and he didn't feel like architects were giving them that they were giving them something functional and something kind of you know sensible with a lot of modernist architecture he didn't want to give them something sensible he wanted to give them you know hollywood glamour that's what he wanted his buildings to do so you know we talked about tvam his studios for tvam which became known as Egg Cup House, uh, where he had the fiberglass egg cups around the, around the top of it. And he had one of those fiberglass egg cups in his flat, which was amazing. And it was, his flat was so mad and so full of, like, incredible things. I didn't even notice the giant egg. You know, like, you don't even notice the giant, huge egg cup in a place that's just full of enormous like architects models and, and fish and bowls and, and airplanes hanging from the ceiling and stuff you know it's got everything going on in it so you know he's very much kind of living living his work no one could accuse him of not being in not embodying his own work and you know and he talked about that building you know and I was sort of saying to him that the thing about that studio is whereas other TV you know if you compare it to like television centre which was all about sort of you know, it's rather twinkly, a bit Festival of Britain. It's a little bit kind of avuncular and got a slight sense of municipal kind of sensibleness to it. And his 
stuff for TVAM. You know, he's basically trying to recreate a sort of Hollywood studio. You know, he wants it to look like an amazing kind of backlot Hollywood thing where you go in and it's all glamorous. It's got, you know, lovely sweeping marble staircase inside and great big pot plants. And, you know, and the whole thing makes you feel a million dollars. And uh, even though it was very much not made on a million dollars, you know, it was like an incredibly cheap building to have designed and made. And uh, and he was sort of told me actually that people were sort of telling him off for making stuff look expensive when it wasn't, which is a really odd thing to get told off about by your client. But there we are. And so you know, and I, and I love all that kind of exuberance and extravagance. You know, I think MI6 is an incredible building. I sort of spent a lot of time in Vauxhall, as a lot of you know gay men of my generation have, I suppose, because we live in London. And you know that building really like hangs over the entire area. You know now there are, I guess now there's that hideous amount of like horrible building that's going in the other direction down to Battersea Power Station. But at the, for, for a long time, that was you know the biggest, most imposing thing on that whole stretch of the river. And it is, it is a marvellous thing, you know, and I and also Charing Cross Station, I sort of have a great fondness for as a building, you know, I feel I've spent a lot of time sheltering from the rain under those colonnades and all that sort of thing. So it's sort of easy to sort of feel like these buildings are sort of part of your life when you've actually, you know, when you've actually experienced them a lot. So to me that, you know, a lot of his architecture feels very personally sort of endearing because I've experienced it a lot. But then, you know, there were so many of these architects in the 80s that were pushing this stuff. So uh, CZWG, um, especially sort of Piers Goff becomes the kind of big sort of figure out of that particular practice. You know, they are design, you know, designing some of the best most outrageous postmodern buildings around and I really love there's the circle which is near Tower Bridge and it's just kind of set back on the south side of the river um it's a beautiful kind of blue tiled thing it's got slightly kind of owlish kind of silhouette on the roof and it's you know it's a it's a really it's got a big old bronze horse in the middle of it of course it has why not and that building is very you know it's a bit kind of gaudiesque you know it's it's very um fun for a bit of london that actually the history of that bit of london is incredibly like sad and kind of difficult you know there's a very kind of dickensian bit of london that area you know and very kind of hard working kind of bit of the docks with you know a lot of poverty you know and then suddenly there's this incredibly glamorous building in the middle of it and you know in the sort of reclaiming of all of that Docklands architecture which was you know quite sober the actual architecture of those warehouses and stuff you know they might have a kind of bit of a flourish at the top but they are pretty sober so having a sort of new build thing like that in the middle of it all that is a wonderful statement and is so you know so beautiful that um it really kind of enlivens that whole area that otherwise might have been a bit kind of a bit of a kind of heritage set. And they don't allow that to happen because they've made something that, that feels very kind of exciting and very 80s. And, you know, it's a, it's a nice kind of pop video moment in the middle of what is actually quite a sober bit of London. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. 
Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Listen to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to John Gridrod and we're talking about his new book, Iconicon, A Journey Around the Landmark Buildings of Contemporary Britain. And John, we're going to move on to the the second part of the book, which overlaps slightly with the Thatcher and Major government, but I'm going to call this the, the Blair years part of the book because the, the majority of it is within that late lamented time. And you start off, of course, inevitably with the millennium, this big key symbolic date that is coming along and, as it mentions in the book, can't be moved. And you talk about the well, the many millennial projects that they were, the insane amounts of money that were spent that were able to be handed out to build big signature Starkitect buildings around the country, ended up, of course, with the, the Millennial Dome itself. Tell us about the millennial projects. Oh, I mean, that is the kind of amazing thing. I think it's kind of living through it at the time. You know, I remember being, if anything, slightly grumpy that they're all of this you know, amazing architecture was going around the country and people were going, oh, look, we've created a load of lovely art galleries and amazing kind of educational uh, museums and, and exhibits that you, you could go to around the country and some really beautiful landscaping. And which museum. nobody did, um, to be fair. No, nobody, nobody said that, did they? Everybody was just... <laughs> no, I mean, gone. nobody went to the museums, is what I meant. Oh, I see what you mean. Well, no, not strictly true, uh, but some of the... Well, I think basically the issue is, right, so the idea was that they'd all seen the Guggenheim, be such a success yeah. in Bilbao. And then there was this kind of idea, suddenly all this lottery money comes along and uh, they don't know what to spend it on. And so building things is quite a good way of spending a lot of money very quickly. So they think, great, it's a millennium, we'll spend loads of things, we'll, do, we'll get all these, you know, we'll get people to bid for projects and we'll come up with stuff. So you end up with essentially like about 27 of these projects on a, on a really big scale happening with sort of lottery funding and quite often EU funding. And they happen all around the country. And our kind of recollection of those is that they're mostly failures because that's how, I think, as a country, that's how we like to perceive things that happen, new things. We like to perceive them as failures. 
And certainly my recollection was that that was probably the case. But the weird thing is, is that actually almost all of them weren't. And, you know, some of them ended up getting kind of like completely sort of reinterpreted because they were, you know, the Millennium Dome being the obvious one, you know, because you couldn't have that exhibit forever. And also that exhibit was a bit of a mess. You know, I went there. It's funny, I was talking to my friends who I went with the other day about it. And uh, one of them said, oh, God, do you remember we went there? And then I had just had to go home and lie down because it was just, it was too much, but also too much in a really weird way. And that some of it was just too much because it was really bad. I mean, some of it was absolutely atrociously designed. And some of it was like amazing. I remember kind of doing kind of like virtual ping pong, you know, like years before, you know, Nintendo Wii or anything, you know, and using kind of like giant iPads years before iPads. Had, you know and um i'm just kind of thinking this is all magic you know <laughs> incredible i don't know how this is working so some of it was like absolutely brilliant and then some of it was like oh, watching a giant coin clunk through a thing to tell you about <laughs> the economy which you know you just wanted to just you know shoot yourself and so no wonder the millennium day ended up with a kind of weird reputation because you know if you went round it you couldn't come away going, it was brilliant, because some of it just really rubbed your face in its unbrilliance. So that made it that made it kind of quite difficult. But actually, a lot of the Millennium stuff was very successful. And, and you know, and most of those things are still going in sort of one form or other. There's only really a couple of the projects that folded. I feel really sad for the one I feel really sad about is the Pop Culture Museum in Sheffield, which was designed by Branson Coates. And it's this amazing sort of stainless steel kind of um, structure. And it's now a students' union building. It's like, you know, one of a number of amazing students' union buildings around the country. I mean, somebody should do a survey of students' union buildings because, you know, you've got like ones by Dennis Lasden and, and you know, you've got, the, you've got the one in Durham. You know, you've got this amazing students' union building, which is a bit crazy. And um, this one, you know, this pop music museum was only open for like about six months. It sort of closed almost immediately and that was such a victim of over bowing you know we just over bowed but you know you can't open a sort of landmark destination iconic you know museum or gallery every month around the country for three years without some of them suffering you know and I think that was the problem was that there was such kind of over optimism that we would be able to go and do everything at once but that wasn't really the case there was you know a finite amount of people who were going to be interested in that sort of thing and I think if that museum had opened like five years before or five years after it would have been fine but because it opened in the middle of everyone else opening everything it just got swamped. And because it was a really small project compared to all the others, which was sort of massive, it really suffered. So I felt, felt very sad about that one. You know, that feels like the Millennium Project that got away. And of course, I mean, I've been to Bilbao. And while, the, you know, the idea of, it's it's sort of a myth that, you know, they, they dropped the Guggenheim Museum there and then suddenly the city was transformed. I mean, the area mm. around that museum was like absolutely like for miles, like completely like, rebuilt and transformed and you know you can't just drop a a architect design museum in a northern town and nothing else do you know what I mean that was like there's obviously a, a lot more regeneration went into um went into making Bilbao the tourist destination that it became than just than yeah. just that one incredible museum though it is yeah yeah, no, absolutely. You know, and you can sort of see, you know, in some places there was the kind of effort to do things on a bigger scale, um, whether it was, you know, the City of Culture in Glasgow in 1990 or whether, yeah. it, you know, although, you know, in, you know, Liverpool, you know, having the sort of, you know, the whole kind of garden sort of regeneration of the, you know, 
the the garden festival and then that rolling that out and having that in several different cities you know um yeah and i mean you, you contrast that... you contrast in the book the way that glasgow and liverpool but also like leeds and manchester mm. and then newcastle and gateshead have all had different fortunes in terms of mm. how the regeneration of the city has been dealt with over those years and one of the interesting things is that so much of it is culture-led. You know, that became the kind of real watchword for regenerating cities in this period. You know, when you look at, you know, the new towns and all of that stuff from the post-war period, that was all about people moving out of cities to these new towns. So you were depopulating a city a bit. And those towns were all about, you know, new industries. And they were, you know, so you get kind of people making radar and, you know, all these kind of things that are very kind of post-war and exciting kind of new new industries what happens in this period in this sort of post-1980 period is that it's all about kind of trying to get people to move back into city centers trying to make city centers feel a bit more vibrant again and the way that they they decide they're going to do that pretty much everywhere is through culture and in some cities like manchester you know where culture is especially youth culture is such an overwhelming symbol for the whole city it sort of takes over the whole city centre you know and that to this day is the kind of thing that sort of drives Manchester's kind of resurgence there's been this wholesale embracing of the idea of Manchester's youth culture and so you know that city centre doesn't really feel like it's for older people or it doesn't feel like it's for families it feels very much like it's very youth orientated you know it's all about you know um, sort of cool bars and that kind of thing so yeah so so you get that but then you you know you get that kind of culture of regeneration appears in different forms different places so in Gateshead you know it's much more about art and it's much more about big sort of artistic statements rather than necessarily about kind of pop culture and so that becomes you know the central focus which is really interesting so it does feel like you know different cities sort of approach this in different ways but they've all used that basic idea of using a different aspect of culture you know the most successful ones being taking something that actually is authentically of that place the funny thing about you know Leeds I mean writing about Leeds is that Leeds doesn't want to kind of you know doesn't really want to do that and wants to do it all with shopping so shopping is going to be you know and which is such an old-fashioned Leeds type thing to do to kind of go well we're just going to regenerate through and a succession of new shopping centres to go with all the old shopping centres that we've got and we'll just have endless shop so Leeds a city all about commerce and and you know is it becomes about that whereas for most of the other places that I wrote about you know they were kind of looking more towards culture to see what you know what that could do for them and so the millennium projects become a really kind of amazing you know amazing symbol of that really you know because we and also that idea of lifelong learning is so kind of part of new labor and it feels really kind of baked into a lot of that stuff you know all those new museums you know it's all about us going out and learning something at the weekend and taking your family along and you know we're all going to learn something together and you know there's a sort of really optimistic feeling of positivity and looking to the future and togetherness that those things radiate now when we look back you know we look back on that period now and it feels it feels so alien from the spirit of the age that we're living through now you know the last 10 years couldn't have been further away from that feeling of optimism and excitement and positivity and grand gestures and feeling of inclusiveness and you know learning something and looking to the future all those things feel the total opposite to the sort of the world that we lived in for the last 10 years so I think as we move on those 
museums and projects, I think will become more and more, you know, we will get more and more kind of sense of affection for them, which I think we've seen from the shredding of the dome. You know, after we all had to go shredding it, actually, now it has actually been shredded. People are coming out kind of going how much they love it, you know. And I think, I think, you know, that would have been unimaginable, you know, if that had happened in 2002. Well, everyone would have just gone, good, <laughs> but it's happened now. And now you realise that actually it's really embedded in, you know, our sense of that place and, you know, as a symbol of London a bit more generally and also a symbol of the moment. It's really interesting. I was quite interested in all of that symbolism and that sort of goes through the book, I think. Yeah, but also just that idea of time. The Dome has been there for over 20 years now. And so it just becomes a London icon, you know, mm. whether that's in the, you know, the, in the opening credits to, to EastEnders or just like in ever-present thing on the on the horizon and other buildings that you talk about like the gherkin or you know for instance the view of canary wharf from from greenwich park which you know people mm. were horrified about to begin with and now it's unimaginable without all of those buildings become gain more affection as, as more time goes by i think as well which which sort of helps um and you basically said that you know the last 10 years feel so different to those years, those sort of years of, of you know, massive Millennium Project and, the, you know, the years of the big name star architects, your Richard Rogers and your, and your Fosters and your Hadids. And then obviously, again, as I, as I mentioned before, there's a financial crash and many years of the Austerity Project. And I wanted to talk about how that changed how large scale public, whether that's housing, because one of the things that those big name star architects that I've just mentioned didn't do, as you mentioned in the book, in the same way that their, you know, their famous predecessors, the the Goldfingers and the Lasdens and the Lebetkins did, was build large social housing projects. But that does seem to be something that is much more an attractive proposition to the latest generation of star architects. Yeah, it's been really, really interesting that actually, you know, that resurgence of interest in building social housing and that there are you know there's a whole sort of generation of of architects now who are very you know who really appeal you know talk to students you know and they're they're totally obsessed with Peter Barber you know they're all they're all about Goldsmith Street in Norwich you know they they want to kind of they're the projects that are really inspiring people and making them want to become architects and want them to become town planners and they want them you know they're the things that are sort of drawing them in and I think I think that is really interesting and I think that could probably only well, almost in a way, it was a bit unexpected because, you know, that was totally against the current of the way things had been going, you know, and still, you know, in a mass way, it still is against the current of what, what is going on. You know, we are we're not building enough houses and the houses we are building are sort of still the kind of developer houses for sale that we were building in the 80s and not enough of those even. So that's been one thing. And I guess we've ended up with this with this new style of developer architecture, which has sort of come alongside. And it's like a sort of, it's like a watered down version of Peter Barber and, um, you know, Mikhail Riches and Karakasevich Carson and those people that have been doing this amazing social housing stuff. And it is these kind of round sort of drab brick, flat fronted terraces of either flats or houses with the big kind of Georgian windows and the, um, and the sort of metal balconies and they all look a bit like the sort of children of Tate Modern you know they're all 
in that kind of ilk. And they all look a bit kind of industrial and they all look a bit old and they all look a bit a bit kind of austerity is what they look, you know. And that was very much part of that came out of some research that, you know, New Labour were doing t- towards the end of their tenure. And then it becomes a, a thing that the London mayor takes on. And it's so it's and it's just become this ubiquitous new style. So you've got, you know, the Goldsmith Street thing, which is all about passive housing. And it's, you know, combining that with social housing, which is a brilliantly radical thing to have done and then peter barber who's doing schemes for you know homelessness and and you know elderly people and all sorts of kind of groups like that who have been kind of like under catered for and then these buildings these sort of private developer buildings which are sort of like a sort of watered down version of that idea they're still really going for your kind of young urban professionals you know all those people that that those channel four property program people have been banging on about forever you know because everything was always about the young urban professional if you were (laughs) if you were on location 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 or property ladder or all those things i sort of find all of that kind of weird fashion for housing and property you know that idea that you know you're owning a house or a flat you're owning a property you know and it becomes you know this abstract kind of financial thing you know rather than it even being your home that becomes a kind of weird fetishization in this in this period and it feels like these flats and houses are part of that they're not part of this sort of social housing boom which sort of looks a little bit similar but it sort of is actually coming from quite a different place but yeah, it is it is interesting, you know, and obviously a lot of that stuff is being built on the Olympic Park site. Um, so that feels like another symbol of what's happened is all these developer estates with this kind of very sober austerity kind of aesthetic all being built on what is a really symbolic new bit of London, you know, the Olympic Park. So and you sort of just see them everywhere now. You see them all over the country. It doesn't matter whether you go to a small town or anywhere, you'll just see some of it somewhere. So I've been talking to John Grindrod. We've been talking about his new book, Iconicon, A Journey Around the Landmark Buildings of Contemporary Britain, which is out now from Faber. John, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about it. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.